Be seated. This is a great day of rejoicing, a day of celebration for Christians around the world because Jesus is risen. And yet for a second year in a row, the celebration is a bit muted. Pandemic protocols have become commonplace and normal for us. Putting on a face mask feels a bit like putting on socks at this point. It's just part of life. But in these circumstances, here comes Easter again, stubbornly marching into the foreground and forcing us to consider our lives and our circumstances once more, as challenging as they are in this moment, through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. This event is astonishing. It is the claim that Jesus, who died on a Roman cross three days before, rose again bodily and physically from the dead, that he is now alive. And we will consider the account of Jesus's resurrection found in the gospel according to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, as a continuation of our series on the gospel of John. We're told it was on the first day of the week, still early, while it was still dark, that Mary went to the tomb and she found the stone taken away and discovered that Jesus wasn't there and she ran back to tell his disciples, Peter, and then the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom we know as John. When they hear the news, they race to the tomb. John outpaces Peter, gets there first and sees the grave cloths, the linen cloths lying there in the tomb. Peter comes and goes in the tomb and sees the same and sees the face cloth that would have been wrapped around Jesus's head folded and by itself. That detail is somewhat important. If this taking of the body had been done as an act of foul play, whether by friend or by foe, no one would have taken the time to unwrap the body. They would have stolen it entire, wrapped as it was. John, when he sees this, we're told in verse 8, saw and believed. Resurrection faith is born in that moment. Peter and John return home, we're told. But Mary stays at the tomb, weeping, longing to be with her Lord. She sees two angels and has an interaction with them. And then she encounters the risen Jesus. And then she returns to the disciples with this amazing message. I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. He's alive. The resurrection is an amazing event. It's astonishing. The question I want us to think about this morning together is what does it mean? What is its significance? And I want all of us, those who believe in Jesus and those of you who struggle to believe or don't believe at all, to contemplate together the full meaning and significance of this event as it's narrated to us by the gospel according to John. It is very easy to miss this on a day like today. To be a bit like someone who happened to be at a Super Bowl party on February 3rd, 2008, watching the New England Patriots take on the New York Giants and looked up and saw Eli Manning, the quarterback of the Giants, escape three defenders and an almost certain sack heave the ball down the field and have it caught by one of his receivers by pinning it between his hand and his helmet, heavily contested by a New England defender. And who just saw that and said, wow, that was impressive. 
and then went back to eating their chips and dip and talking to the other people at the party who didn't care anything about football. But they didn't know the story. They didn't know the context. They didn't know anything about football to appreciate what had happened. But it was that context that made that moment so much more amazing, or for most of us here in New England, so much more painful. It was in the fourth quarter, near the end of the game, the Giants were behind. It led to a game-winning touchdown. And not just in any game, but in the Super Bowl, the one game that matters. And not just any Super Bowl, but a Super Bowl that pitted Boston against New York. One of the greatest underdogs in Super Bowl history versus the greatest champion going into Super Bowl, the Super Bowl game. The, the New England Patriots were 18-0 and trying to be the first team since 1972 to have an undefeated season. And all of that came to bear in that moment. Caught by an unlikely hero, a man who had only caught five catches in that entire season and led to an unlikely victory. Knowing all of that context in a trivial thing Maybe it's not so trivial for some of you. In a trivial thing like football, helps us to appreciate just the, the dynamic nature of that event that just took place. But so many people that day missed it. And in a similar way, as we look at the resurrection of Jesus today, it is easy simply to see an amazing act of a man coming out of the tomb and rising again, but to miss the underlying depth and significance of this event. A depth and significance which addresses the world in each one of us, you and me. The backstory matters. The context matters. And when we read John 20 in this account of the resurrection of Jesus, we're picking up a gospel that we've been studying for many months at Park Street Church, a gospel that is telling the story of Jesus as the climax, the denouement of the story of God in Israel, the which is the story of God and the world. And here we arrive at its climax. It's this moment, the moment of resurrection, that unlocks the whole for all of his disciples, that crystallizes everything that's come before. I remember when our kids were younger, they used to get these little books that had a special invisible ink pen, and you could write secret messages that nobody could see, and the pen had a light on it, and you could shine the light on the notebook, and the messages would suddenly appear. And the resurrection is a bit like that special light that now shines on all that has come before. That shows us its significance and its meaning. And in the light of this resurrection, the ministry of Jesus, the story of God in Israel, the story of God in creation begins to come together to make sense. It falls into place. John tells us twice in his narrative up to this point, in chapter 2 and in chapter 12, that what was unfolding before the disciples' eyes, they did not understand. He says, because Jesus had not yet been resurrected from the dead. This was the moment when things would begin to make sense. And that's exactly what we find in this narrative. John walks in or looks into the tomb, sees the grave cloth and the face cloth separately. And it says, he saw and believed. Suddenly things made sense. He knew it was true. And it doesn't, he didn't just believe that Jesus, this man that had been crucified three days earlier, that John had pinned so many of his hopes upon, had been raised from the dead bodily and physically. Though surely he believed that. But he believed so much more. Because that event unlocks so much more. About his person. About his work. And about his world. And let's take those three parts 
in turn. It says so much more about his person. This is one of the deeper meanings here. Jesus claimed to be a heaven-sent king who had come and who had a kingdom that was not out of or from this world. He had come from above. He enjoyed an intimate relationship with the Father. And he had come in submission to his Father and yet oneness with his Father to accomplish a great climactic work. He claimed to be the embodiment of the God of Israel coming and returning to his people. These were bold and audacious claims. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, which I would encourage you to do, you'll find that it's the subject of the identity of Jesus. That's the question that the gospel is wrestling with throughout. And that question comes to the foreground again in Jesus's trial with Pilate, the governor, just before his crucifixion. Pilate says to him, where are you from? That's the question. Who are you? Who is this Jesus? Where are you from? I didn't get to know my father-in-law. He died of a brain tumor while Mandy and I were still just friends. But he was a great man. And when Mandy turned 16, on her 16th birthday, there was a school dance. And so she was out that night at the school dance. And while she was with her friends on the basketball court, in walks a person dressed in a gorilla suit with some balloons in his hand. And nobody knows who it is, including Mandy. And he walks up to her and kind of nudges her and tries to communicate with her without saying anything, of course. And and then finally Mandy gets it because he's starting to do their secret handshake. And he tries it once and she doesn't get it. Tries again, she doesn't get it. And then finally it dawns on her. It's her dad. And so with this gorilla suit man, she does the secret handshake and he gives her a big hug and walks out of the gym, never to be recognized by the other students. But that was his signature act. That was their special moment. And in a similar way, this resurrection is Jesus's signature act. It's his secret handshake. It's that which unlocks the nature of his identity as the son of God, the bread of life, the king of kings. Even more mysteriously, God in the flesh. Paul makes this abundantly clear that this is what we are to conclude from the resurrection. In Romans chapter 1, he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. He did not become the Son of God or the Messiah or the Lord or the King at his resurrection. He had been this all along. But it was the resurrection that declared openly and publicly this sign that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be all along. How fitting, and John gives us hints into this in this narrative in John 20, that three times in this narrative, in verse 2 and in verse 13, and again, climactically in verse 18, Mary refers to Jesus as Lord. Lord. And if this is right this deeper meaning of this amazing event, that it affirms and authenticates the identity of Jesus as Lord and King, then it means that we must reckon with him. To celebrate Easter, but to resist his lordship just isn't right. They go together. He is Lord of all, 
and he aims as king to be acknowledged as such by all. In other words, there are no casual fans in this story. We are all involved whether we want to be or not because he has made us and he is Lord over us and he has made us for himself. The question is, will we acknowledge him? Will we yield to him? Will we believe? It not only authenticates the meaning of his person, but this event, the deeper layers of meaning, authenticates his work, what he came to accomplish, that that had in fact been done. Kings and great leaders are known by the work that they accomplish. We remember the 34th president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower, as the supreme commander of the Allied forces who oversaw the great invasion of the Beach of Normandy on June 6, 1944 which was the turning point in the war that led to the surrender of Germany on V-Day, May 8th, 1945. Great leaders are known for the work that they accomplish. And Jesus's cross and resurrection, this was his own D-Day. Costly, bloody, but ever significant turning point in the war over the powers of darkness. And it was the fulfillment of the entire biblical story, the narrative. John writes again and again and four times in chapter 19 in the crucifixion narrative, he says, this happens that scripture might be fulfilled. John is telling the story of scripture now as the story of Jesus being fulfilled in this moment. And this was the fulfillment of that story that told of a day when God would return to his people and liberate them from their enemies forgive them of their sins, and usher them into new and full and complete life. And it sure didn't appear that that had happened on Friday. It looked like anything but a victory. It looked like a miserable defeat. And the resurrection turns everything. It turns everything. And shows us that what we all saw and looked like a defeat was in fact, as he said it was, a great victory over sin, evil, and death. One that would liberate his people from their powers to diminish life. One that would bring about forgiveness. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus says, my flesh is the bread that I will give for the life of the world. It brings a cleansing and a forgiveness to those of us who are shackled in guilt and shame, who know that we're only a spitting image of what we were supposed to be, who know that we fall far short and who carry around the weight of sin and falling short in our lives day after day. This moment of the cross was our washing. It was our cleansing. It was that which would remove what separated us from God our maker, the one in whom there is life, the only place that there is life. And the resurrection authenticates that Jesus, in fact, at the cross did defeat the powers of evil, sin, and death, and did bring about the reality of forgiveness through his sacrificial substitutionary death, what we call the atonement, and did bring about a new kind of salvation, a new kind of life, a life that is full and unending and overflowing. A life that is offered to all who would come and believe. The resurrection signifies that that's in fact what took place on Good Friday. Those powers now defeated. That work of forgiveness now completed. Jesus, the pathway is open. Jesus rises from the grave. Death cannot hold him. It is a defeated power. And life begins to flow. 
When John sees the empty tomb and the grave cloths lying there, he not only believes about Jesus, his person, that he is the king, the son of God, but he believed, meaning he believed that Jesus had in fact cast out the ruler of this world as he said he would. He had in fact brought about, took, taken away the sins of the world as he said he would do. Liberation had come, forgiveness had come. Thanks be to God. But this event not only says something about his person and something about his work, it says something about his world as well. The world of this creator king. Something new is afoot. Something new is taking place. This world is being made new. This was always the hope of scripture. The hope of Israel. That one day when God returned, he would renew all things and renew his creation such that the wolf would lie down with the lamb and the little child would play over the whole of the cobra in the words of Isaiah 11. The creation would be renewed, not discarded, not escaped from, but visited and renewed. John, the gospel writer, signifies that the story he is telling culminates in the resurrection of Jesus is in fact the beginning of that day of great renewal. If you've been with us over these months, you'll know that the beginning of the gospel starts with these words, in the beginning. The very same words of Genesis 1, chapter 1, the beginning of the scriptural story, the beginning of creation. And John is signifying to his readers from the first three words that this story he's telling is the completion and culmination of that great story that's told in the Old Testament. There are seven signs in the gospel of John that Jesus does. Seven implies completion. The eighth sign the first one in the start of a new cycle is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, signifying new creation. It's of no less significance that this resurrection, this eighth sign takes place on the first day of a new week, the eighth day. The old week has been completed. The new week of new creation is beginning and Jesus rises from the dead. And then there is this poignant little moment, this interesting little detail in John's account where Mary mistook the risen Jesus for the gardener. And I think that's full of potential meaning. A gardener's job is to cultivate the creation, to pull out its latent potential, to tend it, to make it fruitful. And as the firstborn from the dead, as the first man of the new creation, Jesus looks the part of the gardener, ready to cultivate all who would follow him into this new and bold new creation world through the cross. With the devil defeated and sin forgiven, the way has been cleared for God's ultimate purpose of new creation to flood into the world. And this begins fittingly with Jesus himself rising from the grave, having passed through death and come out the other side victorious, now transformed, made new, and never to taste of death again. He is the dawn of the new creation, of creation's great renewal. Jesus's resurrected body is new creation matter, a new kind of material and matter. 
that has continuity with the old creation. Jesus will show his wounds to Thomas at the end of this chapter. And he'll eat breakfast with his disciples in chapter 21. But there is also discontinuity as well. Jesus isn't immediately recognized by Mary in our text. And later in this chapter, he seems to be able to pass through locked doors. Jesus is humanity 2.0. And he's opened up a new way. Through his forgiveness. Do you notice what he says to Mary in their encounter? He tells her to go and tell my brothers. Well, who were these brothers? They were the ones who had deserted him. The ones who had denied him. Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. There has to be great forgiveness in those words. That though they had fallen short, they are being received in and welcomed. And then he says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God, saying that as a result of this work, I have brought you in. What is Jesus's by nature is now ours by grace. A relationship with the father. An ability to participate in the new creation of God. That was not possible before his death and resurrection. There's so much going on in this event that the casual passerby who's like, wow, that's amazing. A man rose from the dead just can't see. But for those who enter into the story that John is telling, enter into the story of scripture, we begin to see just how much is unpacked here about his person, his work, and his world. And it's great news. Life conquers death. But this cosmic reality is deeply personal as well. Mary stayed back at the tomb. And John gives us in his account this what may be the most poignant of encounters with the resurrected Lord. Mary is weeping. She's weeping in her loss and her grief. And many of us are weeping as well. We're weeping over a world that is broken, polarized, beset by a pandemic, full of death. We're weeping over circumstances that we didn't want that are suddenly a part of our lives. We're weeping over failed hopes and shattered dreams. And Mary is addressed by the two angels. She doesn't even seem phased by them. And they say, woman, why are you weeping? It's a tender moment, I think. And she says, well, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And then she turns and sees Jesus and she doesn't know it's Jesus. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And then there's this moment where the risen Jesus does what a good shepherd will do. He says her name. Mary. Mary. And I want you to know that he's calling your name as well this morning. Maybe for the first time. He's calling your name. The one who passed through death 
the one who is now new creation matter, alive never to die again, is calling your name from the other side of the chaos and saying, come. Come out of your chaos. Come out of the brokenness. Come out of the sin. Come out of the alienation. Come out of the disappointment. Come. And maybe you've heard that call before, but your life seems to be overrun with the circumstances of the day. Things that you just can't understand. Things that you're angry about, perhaps. And grieving over. And Jesus is calling your name again. The risen Lord is calling your name. To infuse your weeping with joy. He may not take it away. Blessed are those who mourn. There's still mourning in this world as it awaits the full consummation of his kingdom when he returns. And all things will be made new just like his own body has already been made new. And we can take confidence and assurance in that because he has been resurrected from the dead. That day is coming. But in this day, Jesus wants to unite you with himself by faith. He wants you to come to know him. He wants you to come out of your weeping and your grieving and to embrace him in joy. And to know that new life that broke forth that Easter morning. Because of who he was, because of what he did. The world is being made new. May we come to know this life as he calls our name. May we come to sing these praises, not as casual passersby, but as those whose lives have been taken up into his unending, undestructible life, who can say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And so am I, and so are you. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your great work upon the cross, shown to us as true and complete and victorious this day on the resurrection. Oh, glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you and adore you. And Jesus, we crown and praise you as the risen King. Grant that we would hear you call our name and take our place under your lordship, in your kingdom. Grant this, we pray, in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.